Hi, this is Charlene, co-host of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. This is just a quick note before sharing with you our latest episode to let listeners know that this episode was recorded just before the storming of the Capitol by Trump supporters on January 6th. While we talked briefly about Republican leaders' plan to object to the Electoral College vote count, the bulk of this episode is focused on looking forward to the key fights of 2021 and some of the top people who are leading those movements. As always, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and welcome to 2021. Ten years ago, almost to the day, I received this email saying, quote, Thank you so much for the willingness to meet with me. We have some good opportunities here in Georgia to create a roadmap for the South, but it will require careful planning and friends beyond our borders. Take care, Stacy. That was my introduction to Stacy Abrams. And on that day in 2011, I and my wife Susan embarked on a journey with Stacy to build political power for social justice in Georgia. And for the past 10 years, we have opened up our Rolodex, our home, our calendar, and our checkbook to help support Stacy and to try to connect her to other people willing to see the vision and invest in the work. All of that work culminated this week in Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff winning Georgia's U.S. Senate seats, flipping control of the entire Congress to the Democrats. Because of that, from climate change to COVID relief to immigration to voting rights and so many other issues, the world will literally be a better place for tens of millions of people. And as amazing as Stacey is, and as incredible as the work happening in Georgia has been, what they have accomplished there is neither surprising nor unprecedented. In fact, Stacey texted uh, Susan me on Christmas saying, thank you for believing in me and Georgia long before it was popular or logical. <laughs> Texted her back saying, LOL, logical. It was always logical. Right? That's in my book, I quote Willie Brown saying, the first law of politics, you have to learn to count. And it's logical, not just in Georgia, right? The country is going through a profound demographic revolution that is transforming the composition of this nation and rewriting the political and social change script. And so, yes, Georgia and Stacey are definitely on the cutting edge of that movement, but they are not alone. In key cities and states across the country, similar work is underway to what we have seen come to fruition in Georgia. And in today's episode, we are going to look at that work and some of those other key leaders who will be the next Stacey Abrams in some ways. And I fully believe and expect that in next year and in coming years, we will look back on the work of these leaders the way that the world now looks at and marvels at what Stacey and her partners have done in Georgia. And so for this inaugural 2021 New Era in the World conversation, I am joined by my colleague, co-host, partner in crime, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. Happy New Year. And are you buckled up for the ride ahead? Hey, Steve. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to all our listeners out there. 
2021, starting off with a bang. I'm, I'm buckled in, and I guess we can keep the champagne flowing. What a year. What a difference a year makes. Yeah, I'm just riding on a high still. I was up way too late following Georgia Result, checking out everything on social media. But I wanted to share uh, this tweet from Stacy last night after you had, I think, tweeted out a copy, right? A picture of... Yeah, I put on Facebook... Your email? Uh, email and then Nakima Williams the new congresswoman from Georgia former podcast guest she tweeted out that um oh right uh, Nakima did email piece and Stacy responded to that and so Stacy responded we still need to see the final tally but my gratitude to at Steve P tweets can't wait thanks for taking the meeting and taking me seriously and so it's just so exciting to you know for our work for your work to be so instrumental to all this and just you know oh by the way, that particular tweet of hers right now is at 33,000 likes wow. and a couple thousand shares. Wow. So very, just really exciting times. And yeah, like I said, we are off to, I mean, it's not even a full week. <laughs> it's not even a full week of the first year yet. We've had this super high stakes Georgia U.S. Senate runoff elections, tremendous historic results. We'll talk more about that later. And also this uh, basically attempted coup by Republicans, last stand in Congress, and that crazy bombshell recording of Trump basically trying to bully like a terrible poor man's, you know, godfather scene, trying to bully Georgia's secretary of state to overturn the November election results there. So I, I can't believe how much has happened in so few days. And I was more worked up for a few days about that crazy recording of Trump's call. And you had even said, you know, what, Charlene, in a few days, we'll have basically moved on because that, like we are seeing today, it's a new day. And I'm definitely much, much more focused on that. And I'm also excited to talk about today's episode, which is that we will be shining a light on the key battles that we feel will be waged this year. And lifting up a few of the people who we think will be instrumental in fighting those fights. I just wanted to remind everyone that we all know that there are so many people doing incredible work and there are so many, so many issues out there. But we, for the sake of this episode, we have focused it down to a small list of issues and just wanted to lift up a small number of people to illustrate how that kind of work is being done and we just feel like those individuals, we'd love for people to know about them, pay more attention to them. And in light of people seeing what individuals like Stacy can do, we're basically saying there's plenty out there. So there's a lot of good stories and work being out, done out there that we can look forward to tracking for the next year and many years to come. Uh, but before that, you know, we wanted to check in briefly on those major events that have taken in this short period of time this year. And again, by the time this episode airs, Congress will have voted on the results of the Electoral College. Over two dozen House Republicans have said that they're planning to challenge the results, and at least a dozen Republican senators have said they would join them. So based on past challenges like this, most experts just think this is a total futile attempt and uh, basically, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. Steve, do you think that these Republicans actually think that they are making a last-ditch effort to make a difference, or is it mostly to appeal to Trump voters and make a basically a show for political purposes? What are your thoughts on this whole coup? Yeah, well, yeah. So there was the um, people started to use this uh, phrase of a uh, coup klutz clan, 
right? Because of how this whole thing is unfolding and whatnot. I think Pod Save America had an episode with that title. So it's all about both fear of Trump and pandering to his base and trying to appeal to the people who are fearful of what change is happening in this country and who want to make America white again. And as we saw in the election, there are tens of millions of those people, but it, it remains a minority. It's clearly a grand political stunt. And it's also, it's completely disingenuous and intellectually dishonest, right? Because these are these conservatives who typically are totally against federal control and all about states' rights, right? Was I'm doing, you know, doing this research on the book, so I was looking at the 1948 presidential campaign, which was explicitly segregationist, calling for, you know, separation of the races and pro-white power, basically. Its title was the state's rights party. So now you have Congress saying, no, the federal government is going to come in here and undo what happened in these particular states. It's so both transparent and intellectually dishonest. And so it's just a big stunt. And it's a lot of positioning also for both for Trump's favor, but more more fundamentally for his supporters. Right. And people can people can count. They said that 74 million people voted for this white nationalist president. And so they're trying to position for that constituency, particularly ahead of 2024, um, is who can capture that mantle and lead this movement. And that's all that it is. There's no legal basis. There's no intellectual basis. There's certainly no moral basis behind it all. And there's not even really any common sense or logical basis because the House of Representatives would have to agree to throw these states out. and The House is controlled by the Democrats. So the whole thing is a big, it's a scam on, on Trump supporters and on the country, and it is actually seditious and treasonous, but there's no uh, sincerity to any of it. And it's just big performance art. And I think between the failure of that effort and the loss of the Senate, that this does represent a significant inflection point in terms of the country's politics right now. And uh, it's, it's like Trump has finally fallen off the high wire, and now we're going to see what happens in terms of how everybody responds and whether anybody has any guts and intellectual integrity or any kind of integrity um, after this. Yeah. And it is good to remember that the many Republicans out there, they're not going to stop fighting and that they don't have integrity. And then that's why it's even more important to keep in mind that our fight needs to continue. And that's why we're... Right. And that's what's kind of lost, the lost the history part of this is that people are talking about the Electoral Count Act and how this actually works, et cetera. The Electoral Count Act was passed after the Civil War as part of the grand bargain to destroy Reconstruction and hand the South back to the Confederates and the slave owners. And so this is what the whole Hayes-Tilden Compromise was in 1876. The South was like, all right, it's a closed election. We'll let you have the White House, but you have to get out of the South and give us control back to these states all over again. And so there was compete. There were competing electors between the, the racist uh, all-white slates and they came up with this Electoral Count Act to try to resolve that. And so there is a certain historical symmetry between what's happening now as the Make America White Again crowd is hearkening back to this law that was created uh, specifically after the Civil War. Yeah. And speaking of history, we are witnessing history in the making. And so I definitely, before we move on to our main topic today, I definitely wanted us to quickly touch on what is really setting the stage for the conversation that we are going to have today about 
looking to the future or looking at least to the rest of this year, which is the, uh, the Senate run- runoff elections in Georgia that just took place on Tuesday. And I'm excited. I know that as we prepare for this podcast, we don't have the full final results, but we are expecting this race to come out for the Democrats. Well, Warnock has been officially declared the winner of his race, and so many have already called for Ossoff. So I wanted to get your thoughts, reactions, and also how you're just personally feeling, because I know like I'm I'm so full of excitement. I could barely sleep last night. Yeah, no, I am. Well, in a much more minor uh, note of a long history of sports heartbreak from being a Cleveland sports fan. And so (laughs) I have developed kind of these thick skin ways to avoid disappointment. And the upside and the enormity of what this would mean was just so great that if we didn't happen, that it was going to be too crushing. So I just really... That's right. Could not, I would not let myself even go there. When, once I saw that they had the resources and man, did they have resources, right? I mean, I went back. Just and a looked. little, just a little. Yes. <laughs> I went back and looked. I helped, when Stacey put together her pack in 2012, she raised $50,000. We helped her raise 10000 of that $50,000. Stacy has raised $90 million uh, in the past two months. Ossoff has raised $100 plus million. Warnock has raised $100 plus million. That's amazing. It's unbelievable. But that's one of the points from all of this, right? So once, so once I saw they had the resources and you had the right team and the right people, it's like, all right, it's just really about executing. It's about turning out and, getting, and building on this infrastructure and making this happen. So I think there are a couple, you know, top level takeaways from this. So one is, and this is what, you know, Stacey and I bonded on originally, it's the analysis of the math which has always been there, but people have not believed in it for whatever, you know, I think frankly for reasons of implicit bias is that a lot of Democratic (laughs) consultants discount the black voters um, in particular, voters of color in general. That's also important to note that uh, Latinos and Asians turned out in very large numbers in Georgia. But the numbers were always there, right? The average margin of the defeat was 230,000 people in, in, in Georgia. And there was like a million and a half non-voting African-Americans. The state's like, we're going to go register and turn out these black voters. And people are like, well, that's not going to work, et cetera, et cetera. So this election validates that. I mean, Biden didn't invest in Georgia, but the operation that was there uh, flipped it. Democracy in Color did this report cards in uh, August, September, where we were, you know, really lambasting, giving negative grades to the Senate Majority PAC, the Super PAC. Why? Because they weren't investing in Georgia. And so there had not been a belief that this strategy could work, which I do think is rooted in the implicit bias that they did not a belief that black people will turn out. And so the thesis has been overwhelmingly affirmed and affirmed in a way which has saved the planet. You invest, you hire up you inspire people, you turn out your voters, and you win. And that has been proven. It was proven in Stacey's race, which was basically stolen from hers, proven by Biden in three recounts, and it was proven this week. So that's like a fundamental piece. And then linked to that is this, in many ways, it'll be fascinating to see what's going to happen. But in some ways, I think that, well, I guess these are the, the two last points, that this is some level of a Waterloo for Trumpism. But for the black swan event of all the things that went wrong, like 10 things had to go wrong for Trump to win in the first place, and all 10 went wrong. And so, but people started to think, well, that was his brilliance, but it wasn't. But he's, he's continued to survive. And so people have thought, oh, well, this is this um, indomitable force. But the loss is going to cause some level of reckoning on the Republican side. And it's going to now going to be fascinating to see as they have some level of civil war. Somebody is that um, Regina A. nineteen eighty one tweeted out today. She says, "I want a thousand articles on Republicans in disarray. 
I want the cable news networks to spend 20 out of 24 hours a day going to black diners asking their opinions for the next right. 40 years. <laughs> that's so, so not going to happen. It's absolutely not going to happen, right? Well, that's who controls the media. Another thing about the structural biases in our society. But the power of Trump is now in question. The power of that movement is now in question. And I want to think about the 2016 piece. It's a, Trump, this whole thing would have been a joke and a historical footnote had he lost to Hillary. But because he didn't, everyone's like, oh, this is this whole major piece. We have to adjust and twist ourselves and you know surrender our values, et cetera. And so now where is that going to go? So that's going to be a major piece. There's going to be some level of reckoning within the Republicans. But I think that third and final piece is they're not going to be done. Right. I mean, the thing I've been working on in terms of the, you know, my book and really researching is how they ne- they have never given up, even after losing a civil war, even after the civil rights movement, after electing a black president, they always regroup and they always come back with greater force and ferocity and frankly, creativity. So we should celebrate and appreciate this moment. But there, there's going to be a major ongoing battle. And this is a moment of truth. And I think this is what we'll talk about in the pod, right, is that how are the progressives and the Democrats going to respond to this moment? Now that there is exactly. actual opportunity to move forward, how are we going to proceed and where and are we going to make intelligent, smart investments and priorities in ways that equip us to win this battle that is really still looming in the next several years? Exactly. And I would encourage people listening, our, our listeners and folks out there, to listen to our recent interview with Ense Ufat of the New Georgia Project Action Fund to really understand the level of organizing that transformed Georgia, what went into these wins, but also Ense really does a great job explaining how what's happening in Georgia is happening across the country. And I think this is a good segue into our conversation for today. Ense's name, she's changed her name on Facebook to Ense, you're on mute, Ufat. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. It was a great interview and a great insight. And I think this is a good segue into our conversation for today, where we are going to recognize and uplift some of the key political battles that we see coming up in this year, 2021, and the people we're counting on and would want to take a close look at in terms of uh, the work they do and how they're leading the way, much like Stacy and her team did 10 years ago. So, Steve, let's talk about key strategic political priorities for 2021. Again, there are a lot of really important issues uh, across the spectrum nationally, a lot of people doing work, but we have decided that we're going to focus on three broad areas to talk about today, racial justice, immigration, and voting rights expansion. Since you mainly, um, after a lot of discussion with me and the team, had decided that these are the main three buckets to look at this year, what are your thoughts? You know, explain to us why you chose these three topics as the top three for this year. So it's, a, it's for this year and I think for the coming years. And so those are the uh, manifestation of the underlying fundamental struggle going on in this country. And then frankly, the struggle goes back to 1619. Right. And so, um, you know, Trump and them were so mad about the New York Times, the 1619 project that he's like established some commission. He's going to the 1776 project. Right. So this country has been in a struggle over what kind of country is it? And is this a white country or is this a multiracial country, a multiracial democracy? And that has been a centuries long battle that there have been ebbs and flows and advances and, you know, being beaten back. And the, one of the crests of the movement was the, the civil rights movement in the mid-60s, Selma Montgomery leading the winning the Voting Rights Act. 
And then the whole series of public policies that came from that as part of the Great Society, the Voting Rights Act, the Immigration Nationality Act, um, Title I for Education. And what happened because of that is the composition of the country and the composition of the electorate changed dramatically. Because this country had been a literal, unapologetic, explicit, whites-only country, right? The first immigration law in the country, which was good law for 150 plus years, said that to be a U.S. citizen, you have to be a free white person. It was passed in 1790, and it was explicit law up until the 1950s, and it was the practice until the 1960s. And so, you know, it's a bit of a tangent, but I was working on the first book. I was like, what is the proposition of white people in the world? And why is the U.S. so white, right? So the white people are about 12% of the world's population. So for this country to be so white, frankly, is unnatural and required intentionality and exclusion. And that's how we got to the point where we had been a 90% white country. But since the 60s, since the Voting Rights Act and Immigration Act, the composition has changed. We've gone from 12% people of color to 40% people of color. And that's also affected the composition of the electorate. And that's what enabled the country to elect its first black president, right? Obama would not have beaten Reagan because the country was not diverse enough. You can't do it with a coalition of most people of color and 40% of whites. And we did elect the first black president and we were moving in terms of creating this new American majority and changing politics. And then here you have Trump, which was a direct and explicit reaction and backlash. I think uh, some people call it a white lash to, to, the, to the Obama uh, administration, to the Obama presidency. And they've aggressively tried to undo those immigration laws, try to undo all these different civil rights laws to try to restore the primacy of uh, whites within this country. And so then now that was defeated. And so then here we are, what is going to be the policy fights and what is this country going to be? And that's the struggles that we're getting. That's going to manifest itself. We had a racial uh, reckoning for a couple months in uh, June and July, but that hasn't gone away. And so now there was a tactical silence as we tried to defeat Trump. Immigration itself, as we were saying, remains a flashpoint around who gets to be a citizen, who's a real American. And then the cornerstone of the conservative right-wing white nationalist strategy is voter suppression. And it has been really for uh, certainly since the, uh, the, the pre-Civil the War and after the Civil War. And so now we have a chance to have voting rights expansion. So those are all fundamental issues to this ongoing struggle around what is this country going to be? And that's what we're going to be grappling with in the next months and years. And that's why we have to find out who are the right leaders and groups who are advancing that struggle so that when we can then help to support and lift them up so that then we can actually win this battle to make the country a multiracial democracy. Okay, with that, let's start with the fight for racial justice. We know that last summer, waves of protest had swept across the country following news of the police murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And in fact, those protests sparked um, worldwide protests and a movement calling out anti-Black racism. We did see initially calls from corporations, um, different Fortune 500 brands, in different kinds of uh, people from different backgrounds, basically stepping up for many of them for the first time and saying, we need to do something. We need to come to terms with the true nature of racism and race relations in this country. But as we all know, there's still much to be done. And I was just wondering what in your mind are the implications of last summer's racial reckoning and those events? And what are the implications for this upcoming year and going beyond? 
And as you and I have talked about, what is actually the shelf life of that kind of series of events that took place last summer and implications for going forward as a country? Yeah, so I, what, what happened last summer, it was so, um, I was going to say fascinating, but frankly, it was maddening. What was, re- it was, it was both. Re- <laughs> yes, it was revealed and validated what is the day-to-day experience of people of color. Mm-hmm. And so just the, from everything in terms of, you know, in jobs, who gets uh, hired, promoted, validated, mm-hmm. ignored, so all that type of thing in terms of, you know, the, who gets invested in, whose stories get told in the media, who gets these media gigs, right? And so uh, the, the big platforms, right? So why has Meet the Press always been a white guy? Right. And then fortunately, finally, also Jonathan Capehart now is going to be on um, PBS's NewsHour, which is great. But for decades, I believe you had two old white guys sitting around talking about the talking about the country's politics as if that reflected the spectrum of opinion. So you had a you know moderate Democratic person, then you had a moderate uh, Republican person with David Brooks. Side note, quick story. I once flew across the country sitting next to David Brooks in in an airplane. And I put on Facebook, I'm like, I think I'm sitting next to David Brooks. <laughs> One of my friends, Sabod Chandra, says, you should pull up all his columns and then just start muttering out loud, can you believe this guy said this? <laughs> right? So <laughs> that was that piece. But um, who shapes public opinion is, is, has been a part of this. And so this whole, all of these issues of the inequality and how it manifests itself across our society have always been there, but they finally got some attention. And so none of us were surprised. It's like, yeah, we've been experiencing this all our life. So all of that inequality continues and hasn't gone away because the attention has gone away. Now, what is significant and what's going to be fascinating and important in the next year or two is that partly because of the, you know, the technology which has democratized money and giving, hundreds of millions of dollars went to racial justice groups which has never happened before. I mean, somebody who's trying, you know, like I said, I was trying to raise money for Stacey. That was like, you know, trying to, you know, pull teeth back in the early days, trying to raise money for other racial justice groups. Always very difficult. And so now that they have all this, all these resources, so that people who have these strong voices connected to the communities that are experiencing this injustice can be staffed up, can be present, can lift their voices and can engage with, in politics and can engage with a democratic government now. So that's going to be this period in this next going forward. And so on rhetorically, people are going to, there's some openness, I think, from the Democrats around, oh, yes, we should do with racial justice. But what does that really look like? And that's going to be the struggle we're going to return to as now we get this, uh, you know, man out of the White House and get a new administration in. So the racial reckoning is here and it's going to come back in full force and they come back in full force with staff. And then we're going to see, are we really prepared to make the types of changes which will advance equality and justice and will also advance and build the power necessary to beat back our opponents. So that's what the fight's going to be. And so the question is, who's doing that work and who are the key folks to be tracking and following and supporting in that regard? Yes. So who with that, who are the key people we should be looking at in the area of racial justice? So there's two people in particular that yeah. I, I really think we should be lifting up and extremely impressed with and, and, and gratified to get to now. And so one is Maurice Mitchell, who's the national director of the Working Families Party. And he comes out of the Black Lives Matter movement. He did a lot of the behind the scenes operational work. And he has a very strong movement background. 
and he understands and has the political sophistication around how do you translate that movement energy into electoral and political force. And so he's really making the Working Families Party into that kind of vehicle in different states and across the country. And so what they have done has been very, very impressive over the past uh, couple years. And I believe that they get the intersection of movement and politics and inside and outside. And they're really trying to advance its work. So I think that Maurice and the um, Working Families Party is one uh, one person and one group to keep track of. And then we have we actually have Maurice on the pod, so people could go back and check, listen to him more on that on that podcast. Um, and then the other person is Jessica Bird, and in a similar fashion, um, she, she's a consultant, runs Three Point Strategies. She used to um, just be on Emily's list back in the day, and then really as she be, began to focus in on really trying to uh, back and support black women in particular running for office. But she's now running the Electoral Justice Project, which is about formally taking the energy of Black Lives Matter and translating that into a political force, an electoral political force, and providing the discipline and organization and structure to do that. They've been involved in in, uh, unelecting in many of these district attorneys. Uh, who uh, have not uh, sided with black people in um, these cases where folks have been killed by police. And she's also in a great deal of sophistication and um, savvy around, they introduced something called the Breathe Act, what they're calling a 21st century civil rights act. They worked with Ayanna Presley, the Congresswoman, to try to get that lifted up. They put together a national black political convention um, this summer, which was an amazing technological feat, let alone showing the political savvy. So people don't realize back in 1972, there was a national black political convention, Jesse Jackson, Dick Hatcher, Amiri Baraka, that was a key juncture in terms of translating movement energy into a political force. And Jessica and them, and Jessica worked closely with Maurice on these types of issues. So I see the two of them as key leaders who are going to be pivotal towards pushing the country on the track that it needs to go in order to grapple with this racial reckoning and to make it a much more just and equal place. Okay, next let's move on to immigration. Late last month, Biden announced he would roll back Trump's restrictive asylum policies, but slower than he had promised on the campaign trail, which made me go, "Hmm, okay, Joe, like, what's up with that? And his team has said that a system to process asylum seekers will take months and can't just happen on day one as he promised. So first, just wanted to get your thoughts on that and this issue of immigration for this year and going beyond. Yeah, no, we, we cannot forget what rocketed Trump to the front of the Republican pack is when he said his attacks on immigrants and on Mexicans. They're rapists, they're murderers, they're coming to our country, et cetera. So that fed into and unleashed this long line of nativist sentiment, which he had rehearsed during the, uh, his whole tax on Obama and his whole birtherism piece. So core to his power has been this fear of immigrants and of the country's co- pro- uh, composition changing. And so that is fundamental. And then frankly, you have not had this uh, enthusiastic rebuttal on the progressive and democratic side for fear of alienating uh, these supposed swing voters. And so this is, a, this is a defining issue around who we are as a nation and what direction we are going to go, as well as what we think is the strategy in terms of being able to win. And so 
we've had to be obviously tremendously on the defensive under Trump. I'm just so glad that the, we were able to fend off the attacks and deportations of the dreamers. So fortunately, some of them and their families can like relax a little bit now. But we have to engage this fight and move it forward. And so there's two people that we want to lift up on that front who are uh, key leaders in the whole immigration space. And so one is Andrea Guerrero, the co-founder of Alliance San Diego, that she's built up. And Andrea has done in San Diego very similar work and similar impact to what Stacey has done in Georgia. And that she's been there working for over a decade, building up power. She was an immigration lawyer, like in a two or three person shop. And then she created Alliance San Diego, built this coalition, increased voter participation and turnout, and has really made Alliance San Diego into a political force in San Diego that helped to elect the uh, Congress people and city council and uh, board of supervisors. And they are on the border. And so their organization is a key leader in these issues about immigration in general, the border in particular. So Andrea and her work I think are critical in terms of, of understanding what's happening and who we should be backing. And then the other person is Alejandro Gomez, who's the co-director of uh, Lucha in Arizona. That That's a grassroots organization that builds power in Arizona, has been working for a long time to advance uh, social, racial, and economic justice and to build political power, right? And it was, it was, again, Arizona also flipped in terms of winning for Biden and then winning the Democratic uh, Senate seat. And Lucha has been a cornerstone of that work there. And Arizona is going to continue to be one of the flashpoints and one of the fundamental pillars of building the new American majority. Arizona, Georgia, Texas, Florida, North Carolina are the places that will change this country. And one of the key people doing work in Arizona um, is Alejandra and the group that she works with, Lucha. Okay, so the last issue we want to lift up and that we've identified as a key area to focus on for 2021 and going forward is voting rights. So tell us more about why that's going to be so important and who are some people who are leading that charge. Right. So that's what I was saying about this has been the cornerstone of the, you know, I'm calling it the Confederate and the Neo-Confederate playbook and really the white nationalist playbook has been to restrict black votes in particular, but people of color in general. And so this was their fear after the Civil War. I mean, places like Mississippi and South Carolina were near majority black after the Civil War. And so they were completely concerned about and, and freaked out about losing their power. And so there were ex very explicit, intentional laws drafted policies that were combination of you know, uh, poll taxes and literacy tests that were explicitly, unapologetically designed to disenfranchise people of color from voting. And then all of that backed up by terrorist organizations, these white terrorist organizations which intimidated people. So all designed to dilute the power and the electoral political power of people of color. And that has been their core piece all the way up to now. Everything that the Republicans and Trump did this year was to try to stop people from voting. They wanted fewer people voting, they wanted fewer votes counted, and they're trying to undermine democracy. And so that is the core of their strategy and then it's not accidental that when it was, I remember the call, I was a Bill Coffee when Stacey called me, told me that she wasn't going to win the Georgia election and that what she was going to do was she was going to create this organization called Fair Fight. That was like five days after the 2018 election. And so it's not accidental that our successes have been rooted in the 
expanding democracy and voting rights from the civil rights days through what we're seeing happen now and then going forward. This is going to be the strategic fundamental battle of the 2020s. And so in that regard, there's three people in particular that we wanted to lift up who are doing very key work in this regard. So one is Vanita Gupta, and she's the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. They created and led this organization called All Voting is Local that has really focused in on litigation and activism and organizing around protecting and expanding the ability for people to vote, particularly uh, low-income people and people of color. And so they played a very key role nationally. The uh, leadership conference is 200 national organizations across the country. And, and Benita is a very visionary, effective, um, savvy leader. And so what they're doing and the infrastructure they've built is going to be a critical component of the fight going ahead. Second person is Anathea Chino. And so Anathea, uh, somebody I also know, I think, 10 or 15 years, and she's now the co-founder and executive director of Advanced Native Political Leadership. So she's a Native American leader and activist and organizer and visionary, and is really trying to create and put together an organization to manifest the electoral power and political leadership of the Native American community. And then in places, particularly places like Arizona um, and some other states like that, the Native American community is a, is a, uh, can be a decisive component of electoral outcomes. And so her organization, um, Advanced Native Political Leadership, it was really created to increase Native American representation. They give more of a vehicle and a platform to that community. And so I'm really looking forward to what she's going to be able to do with that platform going ahead. And then the third is Michelle Tremio, uh, Executive Director of the Texas Organizing Project. And in many ways, Texas is next. And so we've seen what's happening in Georgia. We've seen what's happening in Arizona. It doesn't get the, Arizona doesn't get the PR that Georgia does, but Texas, we lost by 600,000 votes in the presidential election. There were 3 million people of color who didn't vote. And so the key organization, one of the key organizations doing work there is Texas Organizing Project. And Michelle is one of the key leaders. You know, it's very unassuming, but extremely effective, disciplined, and visionary. And her team and their work at top is going to be critical to flipping Texas, which is going to happen in the next few years. Steve, I know we need to wrap up soon, but I got a big smile on my face just thinking about not only just, you know, today with the Georgia results and just being reminded about all of these incredible leaders that you told us all more about. I'm just feeling so good. And it's just the first week of January 2021. So, so much to be yeah, thankful so for funny. and look everybody, forward to what right, a difference a year oh, makes. <laughs> you know, 2020, I hate 2020. And I was all like, you know, it's like artificial constructs. Like, mm. is the world going to change dramatically just because the calendar changes? But it has, right? It <laughs> so has. Here and we it, are. So. It's, it's pretty uncanny, but I'll take it. I'm here for it. And again, Happy New Year to you and your family and everybody else. Same to you. And um, it's definitely a whole new era. And yeah, it's like, I think we're going to finally be able to, A, relax in terms of having to check Twitter every 10 minutes to see what the crazy man is doing. Mm -hmm. But B, we can actually do some things. And just, I mean, it's, I was trying to figure out how to convey to Susan, my wife, last night, the enormity of this. You know, I certainly think that, you know, it's probably the most significant thing I've ever been part of. I mean, literally tens of millions of people's lives are going to be better because of these Georgia elections in terms mm. of flipping the contact of the Senate. And it's just, 
I can't even wrap my mind around it in terms of what it means, but it's just extraordinarily, extraordinarily gratifying and moving and, and, and hopeful. And I think that's a great note to start the year on. Amen and a women. <laughs> you love saying that, don't you? <laughs> I'm getting a t-shirt. All right. So that's all the time we have for today. This inaugural episode of 2021. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. I need to go check to see how my Twitter follows have grown since Stacey Abrams uh, pumped me up last night. Uh, you can find us at Democracy in Color on Facebook and sign up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, with big hope and optimism for this coming year, keep the faith.